start jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. You should be able to hear the magnetic resonance. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into the worlds of science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I'm your host, Gene Turnbow. Uh, My co-host, Susan Fox, is not with us this morning, but today we do have Dr. Scott Vigay of Dr. Geek's Laboratory of Applied Geekdom. Welcome to the show. Hello, everyone. <laughs> and we, and were, we also have yeah. uh, Debbie Vigay, uh, who plays um, the lab director, Claire. No, no, it's not the lab director, is it? it, it, it Dr. No, Geek is the lab director. Yes, Dr. Geek is the lab director, but Claire it plays a very important part. She's the money. <laughs> yeah, yes. She is the liaison. She is the liaison between the Laboratory of Applied Geekdom and our grand committee of gay dynamics. I like to call myself Evil Overlord. Yes. I think that's it. <laughs> well, and I, I love the fact that in the mirror universe, where evil is good and good, good is evil... Your counterpart was far more evil than you, meaning that you're the good one. <laughs> I know. <that's> awesome. <laughs> Try not to, to think about it too much. Hmm. Actually, we will be coming up with a future episode where we actually meet Empress Claire. Um, and we're going to kind of do a DS9 sort of thing where Empress Claire meets our Claire. And uh, so we're going to have some fun with that. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, so so our Claire gets a perspective on things. Right. And and I'm guessing probably the, takes away the wrong lesson. <laughs> <laughs> isn't, isn't that always how it goes? Oh, sure. There's a wrong lesson to be taken away. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, um, our next set of stories uh, go right about that sort of thing, you know. We're, we're, we're working on an Aerocebo-style message. Uh, to contact alien life, and you know, and Doctor Geek and Mister Flask and everybody else in the laboratory is thinking golden record. We're thinking, you know, uh, V'ger. If this goes badly, the Borg. If it goes even worse, mm-hmm. and Claire turns the whole message into an advertisement. Uh, of course, uh, of course. Of all those eager shoppers and consumers out there who we have not sold our product to, and and <laughs> and. And and for those that are worried about their cold and, and desolate worlds, don't worry. Humanity can bring you global warming. That's right. <laughs> the gay dynamics. Of course. <laughs> right. We will terraform your world and you'll never recognize it again. You know, that uh, first Star Trek movie uh, at the time was called the first V'ger length motion picture. <laughs> you know, because of the pacing issues. But, oh my God. but I digress. <laughs> I, I, very quickly on that, I rewatched the director's cut of the motionless picture, uh-huh. and for God's sake, how long can you stare at Sulu's mole? It just, I, 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 he had that surgically removed later. Actually, I don't know why he didn't get it removed before that film. I know, poor guy, poor poor guy. And and as Deb, Debbie says, you know, D- David Lynch would have held on it longer. So I, nah, I nah, that's lucky. true. It's true. Yes. It, you know, Twin Peaks That's in outer that. space. <laughs> so um, we had been, before uh, before we started the show, we had been talking about Hurricane Irma and the tremendous size of it and the fact that it is yeah. uh, apparently headed straight for downtown Disneyland. <laughs> yeah, downtown Disney World. And, oh, my and, gosh. Yeah. You know, it's been, it has been a crazy week. You know, we've been watching it 
continuously and uh, our friends and family have been, you know, very rightly so, been worried about us and wanting to get an update every couple seconds. And uh, you know, no, because because all they know is, oh my God, they live in Florida, they're dead. Right, right, right. Because the no. national news is we're already dead. Yeah. Oh yes, <laughs> don't, yes. Just don't know it. That's right. Yeah. And 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 in fact, uh, and in fact, there was some sort of weird reporting where it sounded like Governor Scott had said everyone in the state should evacuate. Yes, and so, I read that. And, my mom called and a bunch of other people called and like, and they're like, what are you doing? And they're like, well, let me show you what we, what reports were given, you know, and they're like, oh, this is totally different. And you're like, yeah, it's not like we're not taking it seriously. It's that, you know, we're in the area that everybody's evacuating to. Right. Um, not from. So we're already there. Mm-hmm. So we're pretty good. It just, it, you know, had they decided to evacuate our part of Orlando, we would have gotten up and gone, you know, I mean, uh-huh. Uh, if, if that's the case, we would move. Um, but if this is where everybody's evacuating to, we're already there, so that's pretty good. I, I, you know, we got very, 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 very lucky. Anything can happen still. It's not really making landfill till tomorrow. But at the very, at the very moment, it looks like it's moved a far west mm-hmm. of us, and that it might actually hit more of the Gulf. And, and, it I, is, and I feel really bad for those people in those areas. It's just like I wish I could. Can, I wish I could protect the entire state. You Mark, know, Mark Baumgarten of uh, Mark Who Forty Two is uh, is in Miami. And yeah, uh, no, and I talked to Mark earlier today, and and you know his situation is completely different than ours. You know, mm-hmm. see, Uncle Walt wanted to make celebration a domed city so he could control the environment and the atmosphere. Scott was wants to make a domed state so he can control the environment. <laughs> the uh huh. Yeah, exactly. I yeah. see the correlation. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you had ever seen uh, the original um, Carousel of Progress, the they yeah. they show you the the I think four different stages of technological development. And the fifth one, you got up out of your seats and you walked up into the stage because there was an escalator that took you to the top that showed you Walt's idea of the city of tomorrow. And it was all yes, laid out in miniature. Fact. And and uh, there was a little lecture at the end about what, what lied in wait for us in the future. And one of the things that they talked about was something that we had never seen then, which was covered malls, covered yeah, shopping fact, malls. It was, it was like people what's were going. Is that model? Yeah, yeah, uh, it still exists, and and it's actually if you go on um, the People Mover ride here in Walt Disney World, if you go into the, um, one of the tunnels, it's off to the to the right hand side. It's a portion of that same model, and the idea of a um, you know a, a city that uses. People movers and monorails and pedestrian areas. I mean, honestly, you know, this, this was uh, new urbanism, mm-hmm. and it was something that uh, it, you know that the Los Angeles today is trying very hard to trying to achieve. And I just find it interesting that back in the day, I think it was in the uh, early fifties, uh, Walt Disney actually offered to Los Angeles a monorail system, and he said, "We'll pay for it completely. You know, it's not going to be a cost to the city." Or the, the mm-hmm. citizens will just do it, and just to show the importance of and the usefulness of a monorail uh, beyond an attraction uh, that pushed up against it and said absolutely not because you know they'll be no- it'll be noisy even though it's quiet as as uh, the night and all these other things. But it was it's interesting that you know fifty year fifty sixty years later uh, th- those are the exact same things people are trying to do. Yeah, well the. Uh I think the objections to it came from came out of ignorance. The same yeah, way they uh, and I, I guess you would call it today like you know uh, big car. I, I guess <laughs> yeah, big um, car. Yeah, yeah, big car. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it came out. It came out of ignorance, but it, and it came out of fear, and it came out of well, I don't. If if, if people are using this, and they're not going to be using the system that I have, you know, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So there's that clash, and we'll always have that clash. I think. Uh, I think that's why. Uh, given those uh, run-ins with that sort of mentality, I think that's why Walt Disney decided that if he was going to build Epcot, the experimental prototype community mm-hmm. of tomorrow, that he, he he said you cannot retrofit uh, cities like San Francisco and Los Angeles. You have to start anew. And where the heck do you start anew on planet Earth? I mean, this doesn't happen, right? 
Right, um, right. Except, uh, except unless you buy all the swamp land in Florida and <laughs> decide that you're going to do that. And, and fill- which he did. It's um, insanely expensive proposition. Start. Yeah. Insanely expensive proposition as well. And oh my uh, gosh, yeah. just tear it. And who but Walt Disney would have the power to terraform at that scale? Yeah. yeah. And it just, it's amazing given the, the, um, the Walt Disney World complex as it is, plus what became of Progress City, which is the city of celebration, that, you know, they literally did terraform and, a lot of the uh, ideas that people were trying to experiment with, you know, got diluted along the way because the the people that came after him, I mean, good, strong, smart people, but they didn't have his drive. And, and you know, it, it kind of became who but Walt Disney would create a domed city. I mean, this isn't the bottled city of Kandor. Uh, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. They, they're not going to go for it. Uh, you know, it, a lot of the, the ideas that he had were just going to be, you know, it was going to be sure personality at that point if that was ever to happen. So mm-hmm. the the um, the backup part of it was much more uh, much more mundane, I think. Yeah. Although I will say, having survived several Florida summers now, I would totally live in his dome city if it meant that it didn't have to, you know, have 90-degree weather all the time. Right, the air conditioning. Well, the, the problem, of course, with a domed city is that it has its own... Uh, weather system. Yeah, it has its own weather system. Um, I'm not sure how you would control the weather system on that kind of a scale because nobody's ever done it. Yeah, nobody's ever done it. Everyone, everybody thinks of like the the glass atriums of like the Grand Ole Opry hotels and you mm-hmm. know and stuff like that. And, and they, uh, you just or, bake. It's just like a big thermal accumulator, right? And and while that's quite impressive, uh, what he had in mind was literally on a citywide scale, and that's that's different. You know, I mean, we're as far as like trying to grasp the future. I think we'll be lucky if uh, if you know we can get those those. Uh, uh, Amazon dot devices to work as well as advertised. <laughs> I was thinking about in terms of the weather systems, the, the hangers for the Goodyear blimps that are so big that they have their own weather systems. It's, it can be sunny outside and raining inside. Yeah. Something, That's something wild, something wild on, stuff on because that, they're so big. Scale. Yeah. See, Claire needs a geek to build her you know, a, a home or a city where she can have it raining inside whenever she wants. <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> well, and Claire tried to get uh, Dr. Geek to figure out a way for her to ski the mountains of Venus. And it, and it unfortunately turned out that the, the mountains on Venus are powdered not with snow, but with metal. Yeah. That didn't go so well. Yeah. I'm not saying all of Claire's ideas are, you know, home runs, but, you know. You know, you know what's great about our show is that we have such an opportunity to talk about uh, all these things. And we actually did uh, prep a, a series of shows talking about, you know, the city of tomorrow. And I, the way we've got it, here's a little bit of a spoiler. We're hoping to actually do some sort of. Uh, interactive activity to where we can get people's ideas about what they want, you know, because I think if, if we're ever going to make a, um, our homes better or our, our communities better in that way, then it, you have to, you know, get involved, right? Mm-hmm. If, if we want to have, you know, the types of cities described in fiction uh, that are great pedestrian walkways and all that sort of stuff, I, you know, there's no reason why you couldn't build that. You just have to have the desire, you know? You have to plan it ahead as well. I mean, it, yeah, it's... Yeah, um, absolutely. Something very interesting is happening in Los Angeles. They are working on the idea of painting the streets white. Oh, is this the where they're trying to make room for more um, bicycles and also trying to deal with no. the, the heat issue too? Is that the- more like they are plan- planning on painting all the streets white with the goal of reducing the temperature in the city by three degrees by 2020. See, uh, that's interesting because, 
you know, a lot of uh, issues with talking about the the temperature change. Of course, it has, mm-hmm. especially when you consider some of the uh, the older temperatures were designed when when LA was mostly you know unincorporated and undeveloped. Mm-hmm. And if you think about what's happened to you know Television City, you know, there's a reason why it was a stand-in for the city of the future in the Planet of the Apes films. Because it was the city of the future. Every inch has been, you know, concreted over. Of course, that's going to have a massive impact, you know. And and so, I, you know, that new technology, it might be good. If we could also make it so that you can charge your car as you drive over it, that would be good, too. See, if we can paint the streets white, I want to know why we can't paint them emerald. You want an Emerald City? <laughs> well, you know, in the books, the original Emerald City wasn't actually green. It was just so bright that you had to put on sunglasses, and the sunglasses were tinted green. And that's why everyone saw the city as green. Ooh, I like that factoid. Yeah, that's that's actually in the books. So the Emerald City well, was not actually green. Then what they're doing is science from fiction. Yes, Yes, it is. Ah. <laughs> it's amazing how that works, really. I yeah. was thinking, uh, um, you know, I'm thinking about uh, writing novels myself now. And one of the things I was thinking of was uh, a story idea about the last postman on Earth. And it would, oh. and it, the book title would be Apocalypse Post. Ah. <laughs> you know, and, and all the weird stuff that he has to go through in order to to get messages across and try to uh, try to um, help humanity rebuild after after decades of of everybody fending for themselves. You know, and he's the last messenger, the basically humanity's last hope or civilization's last hope because he's the only one who knows how to get from. The messages from from uh, one part of the country to another, you know, and get everybody talking again. You know what I would totally do if I were you, but I'm not you. I'm me. But anyway, what I would do is I would make it uh, the Pony Express. Pony Express that works because yeah, that, that's kind of what's freaking me. Actually, this this segues into a conversation I've been having with a lot of different people in the last week. It's kind of freaking me out how we're reverting in some ways as a society. And um, one of the things that I've been noticing is, you know, back, you know, when our grandparents and our great-grandparents, if you wanted something, you know, specific for the home, you know, you had to order it from your Sears and Robux catalog, and it got delivered to you by the mail. And then we reached a point in our civilization where we said, that's not convenient, I don't want to wait, you know, days to get what I ordered, I want to be able to go to a store you know, within a half hour, an hour of me and pick it up. And then suddenly, we're suddenly Amazon to Amazon and everything else where it's like, no, I want to order online and have the mail delivered to me because I don't want to go to a physical store. And I'm like, in a hundred years, we are exactly back to where we were. And it's just so freaky. And Scott's pointed out that a similar thing is happening with language with the use of um, emojis, emojis, yeah, you know, and emoticons emojis. and all that. Yeah. We're becoming a pictorial-based society again. Yeah, it would, it's back to hieroglyphics. Exactly. Yeah, my hieratic will actually come in handy eventually. So, yeah, so that the idea that the postman <laughs> is important, especially in a post-apocalyptic society, the postman's becoming more important than he's been, you know, for 20 years, really. Mm-hmm. You know, or the UPS Well, except that he's, yeah, they're carrying packages, but yeah. Yeah. I am- no, but, you know... One of the things uh, back in uh, law school that they uh, talked to us, the reason why, uh, you know, we need contracts is because, and my professor paused for dramatic effect, and he said, uh, you know, because we're not all Belafonte. And we're all like, what are you talking about? And he said, well, Belafonte did this film, uh, and it talks about the end of the world, and he's able to, you know, be one of the few survivors of that disaster and walk the streets of New York, and on his own, he's able to get the power running, the water working, all the other infrastructure of the world, and and you're like, nobody is that skilled. <laughs> That's purely fiction. That's why we need contracts, so we can help each other. Uh, and it was just an interesting way of uh, talking about it. But, you know, it's one of those things where uh, it, whenever society falls, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the first things we lose is, you know, something uh, so fundamental. I mean, how many times have we had to rediscover the flush toilet? It, it's just crazy. That's a crime against humanity, which is why I say, in case of zombie apocalypse, save the plumbers. Yes, save the plumbers, <laughs> save the world. Yes. Because <laughs> I'm not losing indoor plumbing. That's not happening. <laughs> It is commonly observed by members of the Society for Creative Anachronism that that if civilization falls, they'll be probably pretty okay. <laughs> you know, it's the thing they've been training for all their lives. As right, they yeah. say, this is the opportunity we've been training for. Yeah, exactly. My wife, Susan, Susan Fox, the executive producer for the station, says that if she absolutely had to, she could, um, you know, she could make clothing starting with a live sheep. <laughs> she knows all the she knows all the processes involved all the way down to get it into clothing. Impressive skill. Well, I feel sorry for that little lamb, but I believe. Her. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, the lamb would probably the the sheep would probably end up being food as well. So, and she knows how to yes. do that. No, so, no, it's a I'm, sheep. I'm that's good. Florida, who is <laughs> grateful it. to be sheared because it's too freaking hot? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very much the case. We were talking a moment ago about Amazon, and um, uh, earlier in Facebook chat, uh, Scott and I were talking about artificial intelligence and the Amazon Echo and the Echo Dot and the Google Home devices and how everything is becoming integrated. The, uh, you know. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's you know, uh, it's these little touches that my seven-year-old self would be so happy about because they are definitely the 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 harbinger of the of the future as depicted by fiction uh it's our own home version of Jarvis it is i remember being 16 years old and thinking oh when i'm a grown up i'm going to have a computer in my home and uh, that will respond to all of my queries and questions and help me figure <laughs> out everything and except in my head, I was envisioning something that filled one wall of an entire room. Right. Not, not and now you put it in your pocket. <laughs> yeah. And now we have things that we put in our pockets that we carry around that can do this. And the Alexa system is literally the size and shape of a hockey puck. Now, a hockey puck. I believe Krypton Radio posted a, a great article about this uh, a few months ago. But wasn't it you who um, who set your Alexa so that it will respond to computer? Yes, yes, I did. <laughs> and, and because awesome. because I didn't want I didn't want to say brand name do you know perform this particular task because right. I, I'm already up you know kind of tweaked enough that that in order for this to work it has to rely on cloud computing um, as as. Uh, 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 Mr. Weasley in the uh, Harry Potter books. I can't remember his name. Uh, I'm, I'm Googling this as I speak. Um, Arthur Weasley said, Never trust anything that talks if you can't tell where it keeps its brains. And uh, he wasn't wrong. Because, (laughs) because these little devices have to use cloud computing to do what they do. There's no way to put that much computing power in a device so small. So the brains are kept elsewhere, which unfortunately also means that it's keeping a rolling log of everything I've ever said to it. Yeah. And and, everything. And and if you, on on top of that, basically anything that is networked um, like that, could be uh, hacked and grabbed by somebody else. Never mind uh, so that. Just device. just yeah. sold by Amazon. You know, they could. There's there's nothing in that agreement that says that they can't sell that information or or do data mining yeah. on it. Uh, in practical terms, um, in practical terms, we are not at great risk from data mining. Data mining is the practice of collecting vast amounts of data and observing trends, not drilling into an individual's personal life. Uh, right. there's, there's no incentive. Right. They, could, they could technically do it. 
I'm not disputing that. But there's no incentive for them to do so. There's no, no conceivable reward for doing that. And you want our devices to do this sort of thing because it, its ability to anticipate your needs is a selling factor. You know, that, you know the, the fact that it will get to know my preferences so that it brings up my news feeds that I go to all the time, or if it has, uh, you know, Krypton Radio on standby when I want to listen to some mm-hmm. music, um, that's the, all those preferences that it builds up just from no, getting to know what you do with it mm-hmm. uh, is something that people want. Uh, well, it makes big business feel intimate because one of the advantages of, like, the small country store of, you know, a small town or days gone by or the the, fa- the mom and pop restaurant that you know you frequent a lot is when the people who are selling you goods and services know who you are. They can sell. They can like say, "Oh, I set aside something special for you," or "Oh, I know you're going to love our special tonight because we only got in so much, so many, you know, monchong, and I've only got like ten plates of monchong, but I'm holding one for you," you know, and so. That level of service feels very intimate because it's like they know you well enough to know what you're going to want to eat, to know you well well enough to know that this product just came in that you're going to want to buy or this book is likely going to be on your must-read list. So it's it's making it feel like the olden days of very personalized service. But at the same time, it's got this massive engine behind it that's – I mean, I'm, I'm more of the paranoid type. Me, it's all about, you know – it's all about theft of my personal information, you know? And I'm more of the type of like, yeah, you know what? If it can talk like Ronnie McDowell, I'll be happy. Scott <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> was willing to give up every shred of personal information if his computer talks like Ronnie McDowell. Yeah. I mean, that, that it, is the truth. If it could be Vincent from the Black Hole and tell me, you know, witticisms to, to, to help me <laughs> get through my day, I, I think I would be – if it could quote Cicero, I would be happy. Meanwhile, um, I'm the paranoid one going <laughs> – is that a traffic camera staring at us? Because that's an invasion of my privacy. <laughs> you know, what's crazy about this, uh, if we can take it a slight tangent, uh, we have quite a large um, media library. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, the, the collector has nothing on me. Uh, I, I also have a completeness gene, so I, I'm compelled to, to complete a series. He's I, a sick, sick man. This is why we have Batman and Robin. <laughs> It, it happens to be true. Um, okay, so it, it is in the package, unopened, and has been so for twelve years, and will never be opened. But somehow we have to have it. Uh, <laughs> hi, my name is Doctor Geek. Um, I, I, I have an issue. Um, so two words. Yes. Bat nipples. Ugh. Oh, no! Uh. He makes the film, but we've got to have it because he's got to complete the collection because he is an, an acquirer of knowledge and a cataloger of information. Thank you. That actually looks, sounds like it would be good on a postcard. Um, but my, to, to illustrate the, how we all change and about how mm-hmm. uh, we adapt and, and that, you know, it, uh, 20 years ago, someone told me that I would not be buying the latest film that came out. I, I would be I would be content with buying the rights to a film that I would then store in the cloud. That I would never actually physically possess this movie, but I would possess the rights to it and just kind of hope that you know that the database containing that list would not be would so never easy go to away. Yeah, yeah it would never go away. Um, you, you know, and and twenty years ago, I would say no, no, no. I must physically possess it. But you know, here's the the, the truth of it. Um, we've no, our our video DVD Blu-ray collection ha- is so large that you know you sat there going like, okay, I'm I'm no fool. I can kind of see how this is going. I'm I'm relatively healthy. I, I'm relatively still young. Uh, I can project how many movies each year I kind of like, let alone TV shows, let alone classic shows from my childhood that are finally coming out on some sort of box set. Mm-hmm. Um, oops, oops, oops! We need a cloud. We need a cloud solution and stat. And you know, starting with Kingsman: The, the uh, Secret Service, yes. I think we haven't purchased uh, a single movie. We've all gotten like the digital download. 
uh, and it, you know now our digital collection is uh, respectable. I know what and, that means. That's code for completely out of control. No, 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 no. no you want it out of control? Okay, I'll freely admit out of control because it's just between you, me, and everybody else that listens to Krypton Radio. Uh-huh. So the entire planet. Um, you want to know how out of control? It's out of control when you start sending messages to customer support at, at Apple suggesting <laughs> films that are not in their catalog because you want the, the digital version so that you can do something with what the, the version you've got in your hand. That's bad. Right. May I yeah. suggest, it's time consuming, but may I suggest a free application called Handbrake. Ah, tell me Hand, Handbrake can read the data files on your DVDs or Blu-rays and convert them into a digital format that you can uh-huh. squirrel away on your hard disks or your thumb drives or whatever other storage medium you might prefer. Uh, you can also use it to convert footage that you've shot on your phone into something uh-huh. you can load in uh-huh. Adobe Premiere or uh, DaVinci Resolve. I, I much prefer DaVinci Resolve, by the way. It, it's... Uh, it's much more powerful, much more professional workflow, and it does not crash. Uh, right. But Handbrake is available for Windows, Mac OS X, and Linux, and it's free. Oh. It, well, is I like zero, it is zero cost, and it's, uh, as far as I know, it's open source. So, and it is, um, it is unparalleled. I have not found anything that it cannot convert. Uh, Susan just bought a, speaking of advances in technology, Susan just bought a little LCD projector. Oh, nice. And, um, you know, it's, it's very low resolution. It's 320 by 240. You know, you wouldn't think that would be much, but surprisingly, it's possible to watch and enjoy a movie, you know, projected on your, uh, cottage cheese ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> you know, or and, a hotel room. Yeah, or a hotel. Yeah, we do a lot of travel. Yeah, yeah, and uh, cool. and it and it accepts practically every kind of digital input you can imagine, including a micro SD chip, and you can convert your movies and put them on a micro SD chip and stick it in this forty dollar projector and have movie night in your hotel room. <laughs> it's awesome. great. But um, there are... Every night is movie night here. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, you know, when you're talking about uh, Handbrake, uh, which is a, a great option, uh, I, I, I should clarify. Our standing physical library is so large that I would have to, uh, if I ripped everything into some sort of array or double array so that things could fail and everything, I, it would end up looking like the end of 2001 of Space Odyssey. Um, this, the data room would be something that I would have to float into. <laughs> <laughs> there is the downside of it taking personal time to do it. Yes, yes. it's possible. But would you? And the uh, answer, unfortunately, is no. No, I would not. <laughs> Um, I, I gotta pay rent. Yeah, <laughs> I, I have other things to do with my life besides that. If, there are lots of things that are personally possible, but that we uh, we really can't afford the time to do uh, for ourselves. Yeah. So we rely on external services like cloud storage. Yeah, yeah, and to make sure that you know the, the safety of that and the redundancy of all that. Become somebody else's problem. Now the Doctor Geek's lab needs a new intern. <laughs> what do I get to do? You see those twenty thousand discs? Uh, <laughs> yeah. the, Have fun. The, the next episode of Doctor Geek's Laboratory brought to you by a, <laughs> a grant from Handbrake. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, the integration of all of this is accelerating at a tremendous rate. I believe with household artificial intelligence, household AI, uh, we are at the dawn of the technology. As as much fun as and advanced as it all looks, I think we're at the dawn of the technology. Uh, yeah. This is not the pinnacle. This is the starting point. And yeah. we we can see that because there are... Uh, the wonderful thing about standards, as they say, is that there are so many to choose from. And, <laughs> and so we have the Alexa ecosystem, 
We have the Google Home system. Uh, we have the Cortana system, you know, from Microsoft. Right. And, and then there's um, there's Apple. probably half a dozen more little ones after that. Yes, and and whatever Apple's doing because whatever they, Apple's doing, they they finally announced their own version of the dot. Mm-hmm. But of course, it's like five hundred dollars for their speaker little thing. Right, and, because and, it's and it's everybody Syrian. looks at that and goes, "Are you kidding me?" <laughs> you know. Yeah. If I was going to allow any of these, you know. Things into <laughs> Scott's getting excited. He's like, "There's a possibility." Yeah, <laughs> into our house because I want one. I'm, I'm, I would go with the Amazon one because, well, a Google pisses me off like in a daily basis, as does Microsoft. Mm-hmm. You know, so and, whereas and, whereas Amazon always delivers me stuff within 48 hours if I'm a good girl and really want it. (laughs) Well, and you can change, you you don't have to call it Alexa either. You can change it so that it responds to uh, uh, the keyword computer. And I think it has one other keyword as well. I don't remember what it is. I'd have to look it up, but. That's cool though. That's awesome. Uh, You know, and I think, you know, it's also going right into this is the idea of like a la carte entertainment. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, companies like Sling where you can actually say, I don't want to pay $200 a month for cable. I want to pay, you know, $60 a month or $30 a month plus these add-ons, um, mm-hmm. you know, and stuff like that. And I think it's interesting. You, we've got CBS doing their streaming service trying to, to make a, a, whatever they can out of the next Star Trek. Then you have Disney doing their own streaming service. And I was thinking about that because they already have uh, a, a platform called Disney Movies Anywhere, mm-hmm. which has all their television shows and movies. Right. The, the difference is right now it's only to, to catalog what you buy. So if you've purchased films, then you get credits and, and all these other things, and then you get this ability to, to view your mm-hmm. collection remotely. But, but literally it would just take a tweak to go – Okay, you know, you've let's, logged in. Let's weld these here's, together. Yeah, here's your collection, and for $20 a month, we'll let you view everything else. There was, I mean? there was an announcement recently, and I think we published this uh, on the front page of the Krypton Radio website uh, sometime within the last week, that Alexa and Cortana are going to be cross-pollinating, oh, which wow. means you'll be able that's, to access your Cor- Cortana account from your Alexa and vice versa. So anything Cortana can do, you can do from your Alexa, and anything that Alexa can do, you can do from Cortana from your Windows desktop. And See, I have Cortana right now on the computer that I'm talking to you from, mm-hmm. but I haven't turned it on just because I, I haven't had the time, but that actually would be an incentive. Yeah, I, 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 believe, that, uh, I believe that we are going to be reaching a convergence point um, where... AI works the same way the internet does now, which is um, uh, you have a service provider and there are a bunch of different uh, data sources or information sources or databases or things like that that you just you plug it in and it's all cross compatible. Yeah, I, I think that's where it's going. And yeah, uh, that's cool. See, and it, they're going to have to improve the interface some because I don't want to say, you know, Alexa, open Cortana. And then, yeah. you know, and then have to know all the Cortana commands on top of it. And the yeah. Cortana commands are go- – like if you have an Alexa app and you have a special skill, you have to open the skill name and remember what that skill name is or ask the skill name to do something instead of just asking Alexa to do it. And I find this – I find this confusing. Yeah. And uh, it limits the number of things that uh, I really want to load up in my household AI because I now have to hold an index of all those capabilities in my head. Yep, or on your because phone. Because of that. <laughs> yeah, or on my phone because of that problem. So yeah, there's only so much you can have it do because of that. I think that this goes exactly to what you're talking about, about the dawn of this technology. This is the clunky part of it. Um, right, if I yes. Could, you know... We're in- I, I think people understand that, you know, I, I'm in my mid-40s uh, from a lot of the references that I, m- I mentioned on the show and all that sort of stuff. It's pretty obvious. Uh, but, you know, uh, back, if we turn back time, uh, one of the first times that we actually did video conferencing in my house uh, was I had gone off to college and my parents thought that it would be kind of a cool thing. Well, my dad did anyway. 
uh, you could see where I, I'd get this technology bug. And at the time, there wasn't really Skype. There wasn't really any of these, you know, cloud-based, app-based uh, things. You know, the the internet wasn't really what it was. Uh, you know, when uh, you know what, what was it? Um, you know, there wasn't really any browser really that was standing out. Uh, so this is before all that. And so the solution was to go and buy like a $500 um, camera card system where you actually needed a slot in your computer to put this card in. And I remember. Your, all these things. And we set it up two computers side by side on the dining room table and did all a bunch of stuff just to test it so that we could then take one of them and, and drive them to my dorm. And my dad stopped for a moment and said, I feel like Alexander Graham Bell. I, you know, kind of like this. Yeah, like Alexander Graham Bell, yes. Yes. You know, come here, Watson, I need you. I mean, it, it's it was literally that. In fact, he did that just for the fun of it. Um, <laughs> of and, course he did. Uh, yeah, and I got to play Watson in that role. That was kind of cool. Um, but it was uh, – but that kind of tells you where it was. And now you've got Skype working on your Apple Watch. You've got Dick Tracy. It took a mm-hmm. long time to get there, but we did. When it comes to all these other things, uh, you know, it, it's the household AI. It, there hasn't been that that functioning field test. You know, that's unfortunately that's what the first generation of us who are using it are. are is we are putting it through its paces. Well, this you know, is, this is all going to be solved like three years when Disney actually releases Jarvis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is yeah, yeah. This, we are sort of in Betamax mm. mode here. This is the Betamax era of artificial intelligence, yes. where yes. where all of the all of the different formats are being pounded on and and shaked out to see you know what's going to break and what's going to take market dominance. The the Google Home system actually has a better AI than Alexa does. It's actually a better AI. It knows more stuff. And it knows more stuff because yeah. um, uh, because it's been it's basically just a voice interface for the Google search engine, you know, which already knows the entire internet. Uh, and Alexa does not have that benefit. But because Amazon was the first one to market with it, they they released theirs in 2014 around June, uh, and Google waited until 2016 to release theirs. Uh, that was. They're just first in the market. It doesn't matter how good Google Home is. Alexa, Alexa yeah. was their first, and they have the market lead, and uh, they're they are never going to let go of it. And uh, when Betamax came out, uh, Betamax had a superior image. It was yes, just vastly absolutely. superior to VHS, but it lost in the marketplace because it was a latecomer. Yeah, and there's something to be said about um, having it be uh, just cheap enough to where everybody could get it. Mm-hmm. I mean, my parents chose Betamax for exactly the reason you, you're talking about. It was a superior system, hands down. You can't argue facts. It was a better system, but you know, when all of a sudden you can't rent anything in beta anymore, uh, it it forced us to move on. I mean, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and it was all interesting too. Is it's, it's also about partnerships and who gets on board and the right. fact that, Oh, you and Blu-ray. Yeah. Amazon is partners with like, you know, the entire world. It seems like these days. So it seems there's a, there's an ease of access perception, whether or not it exists. And for the, the home movie whole revolution, there were two big things that really I started tracking. And one was, Whichever route Disney went would be the winner mm-hmm. because the number of households that wanted to show Disney films to small kids or whatever. And also the Blu-ray HD contest, I called it because at a glance, even somebody with as terrible a crappy vision as me could tell what was Blu-ray versus what was DVD. And the HDMI, the, the HD boxes looked almost identical to the DVD boxes. Yeah, in, so fact there was, was a, in fact, it was called HD DVD. Yeah, so there was a style difference, so I knew what I was getting. It had a slicker appearance to it because it was slightly more compact and had the color contrast. And then when Disney went on board with Blu-ray, I'm like, that's it. It's over. You know, and yeah. Scott's like, I, and I'm like, no, it's it's done. We're down. Yeah, the HD DVD had a lot more going forward at the beginning. 
And when she declared that Blu-ray was going to be it, and and it wasn't based on an evaluation of the actual output. It was just like like she said, it was just a, a matter of knowing who's involved. And darn it, if she wasn't right. And I uh, put my money where my mouth mm-hmm. was, even though seeing the high death, you know, revolution. I said, all right, fine, we're going to get Blu-ray. And he's like, are are you sure? I'm like, yes, because that's what it's going to be. Dang it. The large corporations really, really rule the world. I mean, they, they, they define what technologies are going to catch hold, even if there are better ones available. It's often, it often comes down to yeah. contractual arrangements. You both have books, uh, for example, uh, for, that you sell through Amazon. What's your experience like dealing with those? First of all, what are the book titles that you currently have for sale? And secondly, what is your experience dealing with Amazon with respect to those titles? Well, okay, so does everybody have a, a, a long time to go through the list? <laughs> Debbie has over 52 books out this oh year. Oh, my God! Um, and they're all available. Yes, and they're all available um, uh, in some form, electronically or through Amazon or whatnot. Uh, as far as myself, at, at the moment, with the exception of the Archaeology and Fiction uh, book, which I published by uh, which I wrote by myself and published by myself. Uh, everything else I've done, I've done with Debbie, which has been fun. It's been uh, it was Tex Ravencroft was the, yes. the 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 start of that, and we have actually a shared universe that we're slowly building out. In fact, uh, over the weekend when we were at DragonCon 2017, uh, we came up with a con. Uh, well, I came up with the concept uh, during the uh, Vampires of the 80s. Um, panel, so we'll be seeing something vampire and set in the eighties. Be awesome uh, sometime next year. Uh, but yeah, what's the what's your latest stuff, Deb? Well, my um, my two latest books. I have my third Robin Hood book out, which is with Titan, uh, Robin Hood, Demons, Bane, uh, uh, Sovereign's War, which I wrote with James R. Tuck, and then my latest individual book that I have out is called uh, Abracadabra. It is the series title, and it's book one. Now you see me. And that one I actually uh, went ahead and published on my own. Um, and what's interesting dealing with Amazon as a small press or an individual trying to publish is they have made the process as streamlined and as simple and as easy to do as possible. They also have gone out of their way to make sure that it's attractive to the to the book, to the novelist, because... You know, if you can sit there and say, I'm just going to publish and I'm going to go for Kindle and, and they'll do my paperback for me and I don't have to, you know, deal with a third party. They just print on demand and everything. And the amount of profits I see from doing it that route versus, you know, having a traditional publisher being you know, the middleman between me and the bookseller, mm-hmm. uh, I make five times what I make, you know, on a, on an individual copy of a book when my, I go my just straight to Amazon. No, the benefits though, yeah, um, the the benefits though of going through a traditional publisher, uh, are they working as hard as they used to 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 get your books out and get the sales going? No, um, ninety ninety percent of the marketing dollars for traditional publishers go to ten percent of the authors. So, for oh, example, uh, at one point in time, James Patterson and I shared a publisher, and the scuttlebutt was. That um, while there was one marketing person handling me and 70 other authors, there were two marketing people whose entire job was to market James Patterson. Wow. Yes. So if you're even as a New York Times bestselling author, that only gets me very nominal uh, attention from my publishers. You know, they're like, ah, we'll we'll send around some review copies. We'll take out a couple magazine ads, but we're not really going to try because they want to put the onus on the writer. To do it. Yeah, over mm-hmm. the past couple of years, they've come to us and said, so, what bloggers do yeah. you know? Do you have a list of bloggers that we can, you know, you know, scavenge and send stuff to? And I'm like, why did this, how did this become my job? You know? I, I yeah. think part of the problem is with the fall of the bookstore, yes. you know, if, if you picture in your mind borders, right? Mm-hmm. When a, tradi- a traditional publisher could do a lot for you, they can make sure that you're in all those bookstores nationwide. They could also strike deals about how your book is displayed in yes. that bookstore. So being on an end cap, being by the register, being on a sales table, all that stuff were perks 
that your publisher could arrange and make happen. And they actually would pay the bookstore to make it happen. So, um, yeah, when, when Debbie's series Wicked went on the New York Times list at the same time as Harry Potter, the, you know, how that happened, a lot of people were, uh, uh, you know, selling at the cash register. People were coming up, buying their books, and the, the sales clerks were saying, hey, you like that? I bet you would love this book. When you have people doing that, it makes all the difference in the universe. Yes. You close all those bookstores, then book, then book companies that have been around since the dawn of time are lost. I'm not saying that, you know, I, I don't know how they would adapt because there's nothing more for them to influence. So all of a sudden, you know, um, the ebook version of a book outsells the physical copy for years and years and years. It has been for six or seven years now. And you get to 2017 and uh, a traditional publisher, bless their heart, I mean, they're going to try as hard as they can. They really want to sell those books too, but ultimately it comes down to a really weird phone call because it's, they sit there and go, what bloggers do you know? What Facebook, you know? Do you have any ideas? Do you have any ideas? Um, and I'm like, I have a like, thousand what? ideas. Do you have any money? They're like, no. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, then we've got a problem. Yeah. And how <laughs> we got into the self-publishing um, part of the world was because a, a series that had been traditionally published, the publisher stopped um, pushing fiction. Yeah, and and so at that point, close up shop. they closed up shop. So at that point, it's not that the series was doing badly. In fact, it was doing really well. The problem is, what do you do? And normally, when a series has been traditionally published, it has it will be very difficult for another publisher to pick it up. I don't understand necessarily the politics of all that or how yeah, that works. It's, it's so unheard of that my both my agents d- just told me flat out it was not even worth trying. So when you start having fans saying, hey, I'd like to know what happens in the next book, you went, well, I... I and being me, of course, I had left it on a cliffhanger, and so now I'm getting all the crazy fan mail going, hey, hey, I thought there'd be more books in this series, and I'm like, well, so did I, and then they just got more and more uh, distraught, <laughs> uh-huh. and I sat there, and I'm like, you know what, there... It, it's not like Wicked. Wicked, there was seven years that it took us to convince Simon and Schuster between books four and books five. It's not like I'm going to be able to convince these guys in seven years to continue the series because they're not doing this anymore. They're out of the business, you know. Right. So yeah. I'm like I, I have to find a way to continue to finish telling the story, or these people are going to go crazy, and they're going to make me crazy in the process. You know the the the. the, the the one pitfall for using uh, self-publishing is that you have to remember you are on your own. And Absolutely. So, so if you are a New York Times bestselling author with that experience and that skill set, that's a major plus. And if you also have within your organization people that are going to take the place of your editors and stuff like that so that your end product will be as close as possible to the real thing, then there isn't really that stigma on the self-publishing anymore. In fact, a lot of people are going that route. For the, the new writer who's published maybe one book or is trying to publish their first book, this is a viable option too, but it's very, very, very risky because you're not going to have you know all those eyes on your manuscript trying to, to catch anything before it gets to print. If You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But the, the yeah. end product is the end product that they can produce for those that can do that is, uh, you know, really good. And there are people that can help you with, uh, graphic design for your, for your cover. cover. And, and believe me, people judge a book by its cover. Yes, they do. You know, one Absolutely. of the interesting things specifically about Amazon, cause you were asking is they actually have several programs available to help promote, uh, their authors if you're willing to be exclusive with them. So, there are like um, there there's uh, special Kindle programs where if you agree that you're not going to sell your book anywhere but Amazon, they put you in this pool and you get more money every month based on your, you know, the percentage of people that rented your book. You know, like telling mm-hmm. a library system that checked out your book versus checked out other books. So I mean, there's the potential for more and more money and more and more revenue streams for you know the literally like like the book renting kind of program and different things like that. But you have to at that point you have to say. I'll just be exclusive with you. And yeah, I'm someone, brand loyal. I'm yeah. brand loyal. And for someone like me, it doesn't make sense because I have a ton of readers who are on the Nook platform. I have a ton of readers on the Kobo platform. So I just say, thank you. 
you know, thank you, but no. And uh, please, you know, make my print books available because I still have a lot of people who want the physical book because they want the physical signature and everything else and they display it on their shelves. But even then, you can get start to get your print books listed through, you know, Ingram, Micro, and stuff like that so that they can eventually find their way into other catalogs for other resellers. Like in libraries and, and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, it's uh, actually this is probably the subject of a – Workshop or another yeah, show, probably. just because we've you know covered a lot of this and the educational elements of what we do at, at on Doctor Geek uh, has made us have to find ways to get into uh, libraries and schools and all that sort of stuff. It that sounds, if you go this route, it's a little more difficult. It yeah. sounds like we are suffering from information uh, information source fragmentation. Just as we, uh, just yes. as we are in artificial intelligence and, and in media yes. distribution as well. Uh, the entire, yeah. everything is being fragmented and it's not just book publishing. Uh, although book publishing yeah, yeah. is an interesting microcosm of that. Uh, and it certainly has a great effect on science fiction readers. Yes. Well, and just ta- what we were talking about earlier too with, um, first to market and how important that can be and the perceptions of a product as well. Mm-hmm. The reason why Borders uh, is gone and Barnes & Noble is still around is because Borders Borders made two very critical mistakes. Uh, one, they had a huge surplus and they invested in the wrong areas of their company. And then two, the most critical mistake they made is they said, we're not going to get involved in this whole ebook thing. Whoa. And, and so... Well, you know, because Amazon took went gangbusters with Kindle, Barnes and Nobles were like, "Well, we can come out with our own product and we can have our own eBooks, and how about you know, and you know, we can still invite people to come sit in the coffee shop and preview the eBook, which so because people would because that's why people go into bookstores to read the first few pages, and you're like, yeah, you can read the first few pages on Amazon." But Barnes & Noble was like, yeah, but you can read the first few pages here while you're having a coffee, and you can still browse in the same fashion that you have been used to, but using the new technology. And, and yet, somehow, Barnes & Noble is still hasn't... I mean, they exist, but they're not thriving. And, and I don't know why. I mean, honestly, you know, you know you're in trouble when they don't even consider doing book selling uh, like they used to, like where you would go and have a signing uh, event for your latest book. Uh, it's harder and harder to get those done. Yeah. Well, like, that's what do you sign? Borders closed just because Barnes and Noble said we might not be the first to market, but we're still going to try. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, what do you sign if you're buying an ebook? Yeah, well, that's a good point. Actually, I have an answer to that. Thanks to my some of my very loyal readers and me, you uh, can take silver sharpies and sign black Kindle covers very nicely. Oh, and very nice. Yeah, and I have readers that have actually started doing that with other writers, and once they fill up a Kindle cover, they frame it and put it on the wall and buy a new Kindle cover. <laughs> and then another thing that we've That's done delightful. is make uh, duplicates, like postcard size, of the covers of the book and sign that. And let them frame that. Oh, that's delightful. What a, what a clever idea. Ladies yeah. and gentlemen, we have been talking to Debbie Vigay uh, and Dr. Scott Vigay of uh, Doc of Dr. Geek's Laboratory of Applied Geekdom. Both of them are writers, um, and Debbie has over 50 books available on Amazon.com and other sources. I'm very glad that you were both able to join me for this rollicking, far-ranging discussion today on, on the Event Horizon on Krypton Radio. And thank you so much for coming on board and, and being with us. It's an absolute honor. Yeah, thanks for having us. You have been listening to episode 180 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for September 9th, 2017. Our guests today have been the very prolific science fiction and fantasy writer Debbie Vigay and her husband, Dr. Scott Vigay, better known to Krypton Radio listeners as Claire and Dr. Geek of Dr. Geek's Laboratory of Applied Geekdom. Your host was Krypton Radio station manager Gene Turnbow. This episode will air again at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern tomorrow afternoon, that's Sunday, and two more times on the following Thursday and Saturday mornings at 4 a.m. Pacific, 7 a.m. Eastern. Once all the airtimes have passed, you will find this episode and others on iTunes, Stitcher, and on our own website at kryptonradio.com as podcasts. 
The event horizon had to take an unexpected hiatus for two weeks there, and it's partly due to the stream of funding that it takes to keep Krypton Radio on the air. Krypton Radio is listener-supported sci-fi geek culture radio, and the vast majority of our funding comes from listeners just like you. If you liked this evening's program and enjoy listening to Krypton Radio, please visit patreon.com slash kryptonradio and contribute whatever you can. If all you can afford is a dollar a month, that's perfectly fine. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was played by sci-fi illustrator Mark Schurmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry. And the captain was voiced by science fiction grandmaster Larry Niven. This program is copyright 2017 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon on Krypton Radio. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi.